Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew on Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today is the 150th episode of my podcast. Last week, I teased that I would be joined by a big star who recently celebrated her 90th birthday. Now, I'm not sure if some of you may have guessed, but as you probably know by now, that star is the one, the only, the legendary Carol Burnett. Carol Burnett needs no introduction, so I won't take time away with one, but I did just want to say thank you all so much, whether it's your first time listening, or second, or third, or 150th, for supporting me and supporting the podcast for these past three years. It's really been a dream come true. We have some great guests coming up, and I can't wait to share all of those with you, and please leave a rating or review if you like what you hear. So now, without further ado, here's the great Carol Burnett. Well, so I'd love to um, start off our interview by asking, just today there was announced a new New York revival of Once Upon a Mattress. And oh, really? I didn't know that. Oh, yes, yes. It was just announced starring Sutton Foster for uh-huh. City Center. So I'd love to start off by talking about that show and how did sure. how did that first happen for you? Well, it was actually... Uh, I remember when I was a student at UCLA, and I got the opportunity to go to New York, and my friends gave me a goodbye party, and they said, so what are you going to do when you get to New York? And I was so naive, I said, well, I'm going to be in a Broadway show, and it's going to be directed by George Abbott. And it came to pass. What happened was I got a call. Uh, I had been doing some work in New York, and um, they were going to do a little off-Broadway show called Once Upon a Mattress, and I got a call to audition for it. And they said, and it's going to be directed by George Abbott. Well, it was just, wow, (laughs) you know. And I remember I took the subway down to the theater, and I belted out a tune. I can't remember what it was. And then they said, thank you, and goodbye, and... I took the subway back home, too. I was living in a small apartment. And the phone rang, and they said, okay, you've got the part. Wow. And it was directed by George Abbott. So that was really a dream come true. And uh, it was my first big break. Yes, yes. And I'd be curious to know, too, while you were in college, and was there sort of a recognition of your extraordinary talent by your friends or teachers or... Yes, uh, actually, what happened, Charles, was I was going to UCLA at first. I was going to major in journalism. I had no idea that I would ever be a performer. And so the school didn't have a major in journalism. You could take a course and then join the daily news, the, the newspaper. So then I looked through the catalog. And there was a a major called Theater Arts English, which meant I could take 
playwriting courses because I was kind of interested in that also. And then I thought, okay, I'll take that, and then I'll join the newspaper and take the course in journalism. But also, excuse me, if uh, if one is majoring in theater arts English, they had different uh, majors. They have theater arts English, theater arts film, theater arts theater, uh. theater arts design. So theater arts English, no matter what, every freshman had to take an acting course. And so I, I was really nervous. I, you know, I'd never done it or anything. And so I had to do a scene in this class, and I chose something that was light and easy because all the other kids in the class, there were only about 10 of us who were doing heavy dramatic stuff. And I thought, well, that's not what I would want to do. And so I did something light, and they laughed where they should. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me that this was really what I wanted to do. And I had never known it until that moment. When I heard that laughter, it was like I was transported into another world. And I thought, this this is so I pursued that. And that's how I got to, I started doing uh, uh, shows in college at, at UCLA. And so after my first semester, it was a thrill. I got an award as the most promising newcomer. Uh (laughs) So that was the very first award I ever got. Wow. Yeah. And given that you worked with George Abbott on Once Upon a Mattress and then again on Fade Out, Fade In, what what was your sort of working relationship with him like and what was it like? He was more like a father figure. Because I think at the time he was in his seventies when when we did Mattress, and but he was very athletic, and uh, he 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 would he loved to dance. He would take these he, these women dancing. Excuse me, I have a frog in my throat. And later on, when he was in his nineties, he stopped playing tennis and took up golf, <laughs> and he married. A woman when he was 96, and she was 60, and they lived, they were very happy together, and he lived to be 107 years old. Oh, yes. And another uh, great theater figure who worked on that show was Mary Rogers, and what was that collaboration like with... Oh, she was, uh, she was two years older than I, Uh, when I did the show, I was, when we opened, I was 26. And Mary was 28, and it, you know, and the show was a hit, and uh, we we just got along great. You know, we socialized, and I remember the when we first went into rehearsal, uh, Mary said, "Would you come up to?" They had an apartment <clears throat> on the uh, east side, and she said, "And we'll play the score." And so I went up there, and I heard. And Marshall Barrer was the lyricist, yes. and he and Mary and he sang all the songs. And oh my gosh, when I heard "Shy," I thought, "Oh, that's just the greatest <laughs> number ever." And then there was another one that I got to sing called "Happily Ever After," and it was great. <laughs> and it was just a a, a fun show. Right. Originally, uh, they had written it. 
and they'd written it for Nancy Walker, who was a brilliant comedian, and she was a star at the time. And Mr. Abbott had worked with Nancy. I forget what the show was. And he said, well, she's, she's great, but let's find somebody new, you know. And so that's how I got the part. It, it was only going to run for six weeks because huh. it was a, it was a, you know, a, people signed up. It was like, like the, there would be a different show at the Phoenix Theater every six weeks. So I got the idea. I said, we should, you know, it shouldn't close. So I said, why don't we get a lot of publicity? And we, after, after the uh, curtain call, we started going out in front of the theater in our costumes with picket signs <laughs> saying, don't close mattress, you know, a house, a house, our kingdom for a house, find a place for mattress and so forth. And they, we got all this publicity and sure enough, they moved us yeah. and they moved us to the uh, uh, Algonquin Theater and then a show was coming in there and then they moved us to the Winter Garden. And for a while, and the show was coming in there, then they moved us to the court. Same thing. And we wound up at the St. James Theater. And so uh, instead of six weeks, I, I left it after one year. Wow. Yeah. So, it, And what was funny, too, was the salary I got, that we all got, was $80 a week. That was it. But if we... Got if I got if we sold more than five hundred. Oh, oh, I forget thirty. Yeah, if we made more than thirty thousand dollars a week in in sales, then I would get five hundred dollars. Huh. So you know, <laughs> and then then I got on the Gary Moore show, which and I doubled. So I was doing Gary show. Gary show was on Tuesday nights, and we taped it on Fridays. And it was a uh, a comedy variety show, very much like what I wound up doing years later. And so I would tape the show. They would tape it on a Friday, and then I would get uh, get on the subway. We finished at eight o'clock. No, at like seven thirty, quarter to eight. I get on the subway, go down to the Phoenix, and the curtain for mattress was eight thirty. So, as I say, I doubled, and so that uh, I only had one day uh, off a week, which was Sunday, and uh, and so I doubled for oh gosh, close to a year. Oh, but I was young, <laughs> so I could do it. Right. And did you find that the experience of coming back to Broadway with Fade Out, Fade In was different, given that you had this TV fame? Yeah. Now? Yeah, and. Uh, Problem with that was I, I bit off too much too, that I, I had uh, I had just had a baby, and my first child, and I was then they wanted me to do a show called The Entertainers, on CBS, with Bob Newhart and uh, Katerina Valente, and Dom DeLuise and all and but then I was also in Fade Out Fade In, so I had too much going on. And I was exhausted, absolutely exhausted. And uh, at one point, I was in a cab, and 
we were rear-ended, and so my neck went out, and I had to miss a lot of the shows, and all, and so, and then I missed a lot of the entertainers. So everything kind of blew up, and I, I and closed at once, you know. And for that, I was grateful. I, I just needed. I, I didn't need to do all of that, you know, and I had a new little baby girl. Right, right. And I know another great um, performer you worked with early on was Buddy Hackett on the TV show Stanley. And yep. what was that like to have that early experience with him and sort of learning from him? Or Well, it was the only sitcom that was ever done live. It wasn't on tape. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, it was live. And... um what was funny was, you know, you couldn't do, uh, like, you know, when you tape a show, then they go into the editing room and then they kind of add a laugh track, you know. <laughs> well, this we couldn't do. So what they did was have, have the agents from the William Morris Agency come and sit in the audience and laugh. <laughs> Whether it was funny or not. <laughs> so I thought that was a but Buddy was very sweet to me, you know, and it was a it was a break, uh, and uh, I don't know that I learned much from him because I'd already, uh, you know, it was it was okay, you know, not not my favorite thing to do. Right, right. And having had these early experiences both in TV and theater, what made you decide to sort of concentrate more on TV and film well, further? I think, you know, originally I wanted to be on Broadway. <clears throat> that was my goal. And I made it. But then I started doing the Gary Moore show, and every week there would be a new character to play. There would be a new song to sing. There would be a new dance number. So as opposed to doing the same thing eight times a week for a year. Right. I started to like that. I thought, well, this is good. I don't have to be... I can learn and do more different characters by being on television. And so I kind of, that became the thing that I wanted to do. Right. <clears throat> and what was it like to do that for 10 years with the Carol Burnett show? And was that ever sort of exhausting or hard? No, to... not at all. Ah. We, what we learned from doing the Gary Moore show, we were well rehearsed and well, I didn't work that uh, the many hours a week, and it was 11 years that we were on. And uh, I, we, uh, we, we were just, we knew what we were doing. It wasn't like, there are a lot of shows where they keep rewriting and rewriting right up until even when the audience is there, you know? Right. And taping into 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. <clears throat> we never had that problem. Right. We finished the show in time to take our guest stars out to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> While all the other shows were still taping until one or two in the morning, we would uh, do two shows on Friday, tape both. The first one was a dress rehearsal, but we taped it with an audience and then a different audience at uh, 8 o'clock. And we were finished by 10 with all the dance numbers and the sketches and the costume changes and scenery and all of that. So that uh, the, our audience, studio audience, it was as if they had been sitting and watching a Broadway show. They didn't have to sit there like some audiences for five hours right. and six hours to watch, some, you know, maybe 28 minutes of tape for a sitcom. 
and we were, uh, it was like summer stock. You know, we knew what we were doing. Right. Yeah, not every week was great or brilliant, but some was, you know. Oh, yes. You know. Right, I would say most were, most were. And what was the process like of deciding what would make a good special guest or even co-star like Vicki Lawrence or Harvey Corman of whose sort of humor played best with yours? And Well, he was great. And uh, I had discovered Harvey when he was on the Danny Kay show. Danny had a, a variety show before us, and he was going off the air when we were going to come on the air. And we kept saying, we need somebody like Harvey Corman. Like, you know, uh, Carl Reiner supported Sid Caesar, and uh, there been, uh, oh gosh, Art Carney supported Jackie Gleason, you know. We need, and I said, we need somebody like that. And then, because since uh, Danny's show was going off the air, we said, well, let's get the Harvey Corman. So we, I remember I practically jumped him in the parking lot <laughs> at CBS. I said, you've got to be on our show, you know, please. And see, so we got Harvey, and then Vicki wrote me a fan letter, and I went to see her in a contest that she was in. She was 18, and she was in a contest in her hometown for the title role of Miss Fireball of Inglewood. <laughs> <laughs> and she won the contest, and I saw something in her. I said, let's sign her. And so we signed Vicki. And then we got Lyle to be the handsome announcer. And then later on, forgive me, honey, I really got a frog in my throat. Oh, yes. And then later on, Lyle became a very good sketch player. And it wasn't until then we started hiring, you know, guest stars. So Tim Conway was a guest. He, and he became a frequent guest, so much so that finally, in the ninth season, we hired him to be on every week. Everybody thinks he was on the show every week from the beginning, but right. that wasn't true. Right. And what was the process like during the Carol Burnett Show fame of deciding when you wanted to take other projects and things like that on? Well, I did a lot of pro other projects while I was still doing the Burnett Show. Right, right. During the summertime, I would do uh, a theater. I remember in Hollywood, I did uh, uh, Plaza Suite with George Kennedy, and then I did Same Time Next Year with Dick Van Dyke, and then one summer, I, uh, Rock Hudson and I went around the country doing uh, the musical I Do, I Do. So I still had my theater chops, you know, <laughs> and I, I loved doing that. It was a, just a, another, another way to grow. And to have fun. Right. And did you have offers to come back to Broadway during that time that you turned down? Or? I did. I can't remember what it was for. But I said, you know, I've got, I'm doing what I want. And now, then I had three three daughters. Right. So, you know, uh, and the thing was when I did my show, it was like a school schedule on uh, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays. I could take the kids to school, rehearse, and get out early enough to pick them up from school, <laughs> and be home and have an early dinner. Then on Thursdays and Fridays, uh, we had orchestra rehearsal on Thursdays nights, 
And Friday, of course, is when we tape the show. But the kids would come to the show on the dress rehearsal on Friday. We'd have weekends off. And we'd have a week off every uh, fourth week. And we had our summers off. And a week at Easter, two weeks at Christmas. So it really was almost like a half part-time job. Right. And being such a big celebrity from the show and everything else, what was the process like of sort of keeping part of your private life private and having to sort of maintain that balance? Well, uh, it wasn't as bad as it is now, you oh. know, with everybody. There was the paparazzi and all. There was some paparazzi, but they kind of left me alone. And uh, we, we were fine, you know, and uh, uh, we never had any problems you know like I feel bad for some of the uh, the people today you know when they can't even go out of their house without somebody taking a picture and yelling at them you know so we, we were we where we were was the right time for me right and what will make you I'm curious to look at a role in a movie or a show and think that it is right for you versus not well I don't know. It's like you read something and you like it or you don't, you know. And <laughs> it's, uh, I just finished doing uh, Better Call Saul last year. And then, because I love that show and I love Vince Gilligan and all of that. I think they're brilliant. So I had a really good time doing a part there. And then I just did uh, Palm Royale, which was will be on Apple TV. Uh, starting in the mid-October, 10 episodes. And I did, uh, it was very good writing, but what really sold me on wanting to do it were the were the co-stars, Kristen Wiig, uh -huh. Allison Janney, Laura Dern. You know, you can't beat that. Yes. Yeah. And so from the Carol Burnett show, you had this sort of iconic style of humor and all that. And what was it like when you took on a project like Noises Off, which had a kind of different comedy? That was tough. I think they should have cast Maggie Smith in that role. Oh. You know, she would have been, she would have nailed it. I didn't, I wasn't comfortable trying to do the Cockney accent at all. But I did love working with John Ritter. He, and he was he was such fun and so sweet. You know, there was <clears throat> there were some good people in it, and, but I I felt that I was miscast. Uh, and um, you've said in interviews before that you can't tell a joke to save your life. But <laughs> <That's right. laughs> where do you think that your sort of sense of humor comes from, if not from those? Well, there's a, there's a, a line that I heard from Ed Wynn hitting on that you're way too young to know who this is. He was a star in vaudeville a hundred years ago. <laughs> and he was a guest one time on the Gary Moore show. And at the time, he was like 70, something like that. And he, you know, he'd been in show business his whole life. And Gary was asking him, what's the difference between a comedian and a comic actor and Ed said well a comedian says funny things like Bob Hope a comic actor says things funny like Jack Benny right. so I always thought I say things funny I don't say funny things 
it's it's the way you interpret it. Right. And what is your opinion on the way that comedy is sort of changing now with the like cancel culture and things like that? And well, you know, funny is funny. Uh, I don't like it when it's gratuitous. You know, the kind of edgy stuff. <clears throat> if it doesn't really have any reason other than being edgy, you know, and saying four-letter words, and I'm not a prude, but I can certainly understand it if it's coming out of character, out of a character, but not just for shock value. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, as far as you look at uh, our show, uh, and I dare anybody not to have a great time watching Tim and Harvey do the dentist sketch. And that's over 40 years old. And it holds up. Funny is funny. And you look at old Dick Van Dyke shows, Mary Tyler Moore shows. Look at All in the Family. They still hold up because they're just intrinsic. They are funny. And they say funny things. You know, and so I'm not old-fashioned that way because I, you know, I, I... I do get a kick out of <clears throat> new comedians when they're really good and, you know, have a reason for what they're doing. Right. right. And you recently started this campaign to rename the Majestic Theater after Hal Prince. Yeah. And, and they won't, they, they turned us down. Oh. Oh, I'm so sorry. That... <laughs> so what I'm trying to do now is say, well, what about the St. James? Because that's the theater that uh, Hal Prince debuted um, the Pajama Game. That was his first production. Uh-huh. He was 25 years old. So that St. James would be great to change the name. If they won't do it, we're, we're, we're pursuing other theaters. Hoping, you know, but the Schuberts aren't very nice people. <laughs> and they are, they really, you know, they are so, I don't know, uptight and it just angered me that that uh, they wouldn't even answer me. Uh, you know, okay. finally we had we had um, a friend who was very into the theater who knew the uh, Mr. Wankel, I think is his name, of the Majestic. I said, "Would you ever consider changing?" He said, "No." Uh, you know, so that was it. So, but I'm not giving up. I'm still hoping because of all people, Hal Prince needs a theater named after him. He won 21 Tonys. Right. Nobody will ever match that. Also, there are no directors on Broadway who have a theater named after them. There are composers and playwrights and artists, but no directors. And that leads me to ask, too, what do you think makes an ideal director, be it on stage or on screen? Well, first thing, I think is it the casting. Right. You've got to be. You've got to cast it right, and trust your actors. I remember when I did uh, a wedding with Robert Altman. He got all of us together, and he told us what the story was going to be, and on and on. And then he said, "And if any of you have an idea for your scene, or a line or two, or dialogue, or whatever." I want you to come to me, and if I like it, we'll put it in. He, he said, because some of, and I've never heard a director say this before, he said, some of my best lines in dialogue 
have come from the actors themselves. He said, so I want to hear. <clears throat> he said, if I don't like it, we won't put it in. You know, so, but he encouraged us <clears throat> to improvise. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and to, um, to go back to Al Prince, I'd be curious to know, how did you first meet him? Was it during the Follies concert or? Uh, no, no. I've known Al for, since once on a mattress. Uh-huh. Even because he was very good friends with Mary and all. So I was acquainted with him from that time on, yeah. And Steve Sondheim, too. Right. How did the idea come to work with Hal Prince on Hollywood Arms? Well, Carrie and I, you know, we were writing the play, and uh, I showed the first hundred pages to, to my friend Beverly Sills. Huh? And she read it, and I said, you know, we're just looking for a director to help us develop it some young director, whatever, you know. She said, well, let me show it to Hal and uh, then get his opinion on who, you know, who he might suggest, some new up upcoming director. And he read it, and he said, well, what's wrong with me? <laughs> <coughs> well, Carrie and I were over the moon. And so that's how, that's how that came about. And he was just so wonderful to work with. I just adore him. And so they, I always said, He's the brother I never had, so we called. He called me sis, and I called him bro. Ah, yeah. And did the play change a lot from that first draft, or? Oh sure, yeah. Like? And during rehearsal, you know, and he 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 was we because Carrie and I wrote it where there were a lot of different scenes, and you can't do that on stage, you know. And I remember Hal saying, uh, "Don't don't spread it out so much. If you can put." this one scene, uh, this one moment in one scene as opposed to three or four different scenes. That's what, that's the way we should do it. You know, that's about it. We had a great cast and Michelle Park, who played my mother, uh, won the Tony. Right, right. Yeah. And I've interviewed um, actually both Michelle Park and Donald and Champlin who have talked about oh. the sort of casting process for it. And I'd be curious to know your sort of take on that and what you were looking for. And Well, what we looked for, we found. Uh, Carrie was ill at the time, you know, and she was in the hospital. And Equity allowed us, which was very nice, to, uh, they filmed some of the auditions. And so uh, they... Then they sent the tape out to us so I could show it to Carrie in, in the hospital room. And we both loved, uh, of course, Donna Lynn was wonderful. And then Michelle came out of the blue and uh, we said, and it, it was a given that we wanted Linda Lavin. Oh. So that, that was from the get-go, and she said yes. So it was a labor of love. Right. And how closely or sort of how much information did you give the actors in rehearsal about your actual mother and all that? Well, um, I didn't have to do too much because they read the book. Right. They read my book. And so they were kind of, and they just, uh, I'm trying to remember, I know Michelle had to learn to play the ukulele and sing a little bit. And uh, I helped her with that. And I helped little Sarah with, uh, you know, in the first act when she was playing me at 11 years old or whatever it was. 
you know, I helped her with a couple of the songs that she had to do, mostly with the singing. And uh, Hal, you know, he, he would help them along with the direction. But again, it was in the casting. If you cast well, you don't have to direct too much. I remember when I was I did Annie, and I went to John Houston for before the first scene. I was going to film, and I said, oh, "Mr. Houston, how do you see me doing this scene?" And he said, "Well, just cavort, dear. Cavort, <laughs> which means just go out and have fun." You know? right. And that's so I cavorted. <laughs> but that was my direction. Just cavort, dear. I'm not worried about you. Just do what you do. Right. You know. Yeah, and he only did one or two takes. That was it. And why do you think that Hollywood Arms ultimately wasn't able to run quite as long? Well, the, it just didn't, you know. Uh, we got uh, mixed reviews, but we got one from, oh gosh, he was a toughie, a brave review, and he's a man who never liked anything. Oh, uh, John Simon? John Simon, Simon yeah. And he loved it. Yeah, it was a very sweet, loving review. I thought, wow, that's that's pretty nice, you know. And uh, so that was it. But the thing is, we went the distance. Right. And you know? how often do you read reviews of your own work, be it as a cast member or on the creative? Oh, I'll read them, you know. And then I say, okay, <laughs> well, maybe they're right. There, maybe they were right, or you know, I disagree with this one. But you know. It, okay and uh it, it i've gotten some wonderful ones and some pants you know but you learn to live with it because you can't win them all right right and i'd be curious to know too what made you decide initially to come back to broadway with moon over buffalo oh well i've been away for 30 years and i just i wasn't doing much and i thought well okay i'll i'll come back and do it you know that was a rough one because they, uh, they rewrote and rewrote and rewrote, you know. And uh, did you ever see the documentary they did on it? Yes, yes. I was actually going to ask you about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Were, it was peculiar. And, you know, they had. Uh, I, I wasn't thrilled with the, the director. He was kind of a, a dictator. Oh. I remember uh, Philip wasn't happy with him. But once we opened, we had fun. Right. And then the other um, Broadway thing you did that we haven't talked about is the Sondheim Review. And what sort of inspired you to do that? I know you've done Joanne and Company before. and Yeah. Well, I love uh, Steve's work. You know, every song, I've, I've always described it as a three-act play. It's got beginning, the middle, and it's a... Oh, so so often there's a surprise ending, and it's a, it's an acting actor's exercise to sing his songs, and so I love that, and I loved working with George Hearn, and uh, well everybody, and we we had a good time with that one, you know you, you can't go wrong with a Sondheim song, right? And was there ever a full Sondheim role or any other musical role that you wanted to do but didn't end up doing? <clears throat> No, I think, you know, if I if I was going to do Broadway, you know, and forget about the age or when or anything, I think I would have liked to do Annie Get Your Gun. Oh. I would have liked to do MAME. And 
as I got older, Gypsy. Because oh. Gypsy's the best. Right. That score and that book, you know, it's just brilliant. There's not a wrong thing in it. Yes. You would have been wonderful in all three of those. That would have been exciting. Um, <laughs> And so I'd love to um, take us up closer to the present day, too, by asking um, what was the period of the pandemic like for you, both sort of personally and professionally? And Well, we were in the pandemic when I did Better Call Saul. Oh. So I was working. Uh, and it was interesting because when we weren't in a scene, everybody, well, the crew, everybody on the crew and backstage they wore masks and we had to be vaccinated. They were tested three times a week. Wow. Yeah, and uh, so when the actors were doing a scene, uh, I wore those, that thing, that's a plastic thing you put down in front of your face. They didn't wear masks because they'd mess up the makeup, you know. Uh. And so, uh, and they were very, very um, careful about it. And there wasn't one outbreak at all. And I was there uh, for two months. Huh? Yeah. And then same thing uh, when I did Palm Royale. Uh, they were there, all the, the crew, everybody wore masks. And again, we were tested Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Okay. And so, you know, if anybody got sick, that we would have to redo the schedule. You know, so you had to be really careful. But we got through it. So I I worked a lot during the pandemic. Right. And what have you found to be the sort of changes in being in the business as an older actress? And No, uh, thank God I've still got my, I can still memorize lines. <laughs> you, yes. know, you, would, you would think, uh, you know, you, you might have difficulty, but uh, I, I try to keep my mind active with... Um, crossword puzzles, with spelling bee, with wordle. Uh. I, I, I wordle with, um, uh, I'm going to name drop. I wordle with Allison Janney, oh. Charlize Theron, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Wow. We wordle every morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that, that's fun. I, I, I look forward to that. And being such a great star, what are your thoughts on sort of being approached by fans and all that? Do you like it or do you find it annoying? Or No, I don't find it annoying. I, I'm grateful. And especially when it's younger people, I, uh, you know, that, that tickles me. And the thing is that, you know, they, I'm getting fan mail from 10-year-olds. Right. And teenagers and all because of the DVDs that we sold and YouTube and MeTV and Shout and all of that. So I, I'm, uh, I'm very touched by that. And I remember when I was a kid, my grandmother and I would go to Hollywood Boulevard and hang over the ropes watching all the movie stars go into a premiere. And at times I was a kid and I got autographs and the people who were nice to me, it stayed with me and I so, so I try to be nice to anybody that comes up and, you know, and talks about what I do. And I, I'm very, I'm grateful. So it's not annoying in the least. Oh, 
Oh, yes. That is wonderful. I know you actually answered my fan letter like five years ago or something like that. And it was (laughs) so, so exciting for me. And so I'd love to ask you about this recent big 90th birthday celebration that you had. And what was that like to be reunited with all these? Oh, it was a thrill. Uh, See, I I was producing it. I was one of the executive producers. So I knew certain segments that were going to be on the show. You know, like the singing and, you know, with Bernadette and Kristen and, and Easy Street and all of that and Sutton Foster. and So I knew all of those those elements. What I did not know was what each person, when they came out to talk about me, I didn't know what they were going to say. Right. And I didn't know about all the videos. I was pretty surprised when, boom, there's Michelle Obama <sighs> and, and uh, President and Mrs. Biden. That was a shock to me, you know. It was a thrill. So <laughs> I guess the word is gobsmacked. That's what I was, yeah. Yes. And I'm curious to know, do you like to watch your movies and TV shows, and is there one especially that you... Well, I, it's, I'm not Norma Desmond. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't, you know, I don't do that. But I have watched stuff when it's, like when we were do, going to do the 90th, I had to watch certain sketches to say, okay, let's put that one in and let's cut that one down and so forth. So I did have to watch a few things, you know. And unfortunately, we were 33 minutes long when we went into editing, so we had to cut 33 minutes, which I I was sorry about, you know, but it was just we had too many good things. (laughs) Some had to go, you know. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> excerpts from when I did a special with Robert Preston and Dolly Parton <clears throat> and um, we had sketches that uh, we had to had to cut you know cut out but uh, it, it came together really well and we were thrilled it's it was uh, number one for the whole week oh wow not even for that night but for the whole week so that was a big deal and what was really funny I guess I can say this. We first went to CBS, which would be obvious. Right. And they passed. Oh. Yep, they passed. (laughs) (laughs) NBC picked it up, and they couldn't have been nicer. But, you know, so I thought, well, good, that's going to show CBS. (laughs) I hope they're sorry they didn't do it, you know. Right. And uh, just a few concluding questions. I'd be curious to know, having worked with everyone from older stars like Lillian Gish and Lucille Ball up to some of the biggest stars of today, do you find that there's a difference between how these older and younger actors approach the process? And Not really. Huh? Not really. You know, here I'm working with Kristen Wiig. She's brilliant and fun. And she plunges in and does it. Well, that's the way Lucy was. You know, so it's, uh, and Allison, you know, it's a talent will out. And, you know, they, uh, there wasn't a one in the rotten apple in the barrel at all. You know, everybody had a good time. And so that's the way I've been very fortunate in my career. uh, It's been very seldom that I've ever worked with with people that I just didn't want to be with. Oh, yes. And is there anyone who you would like to work with now that you have? Meryl Street. Meryl Street. Oh. 
I do. I think she's not only brilliant actress, but she's funny. She's got a great comic sense, and she sings. You know, and so I always thought, oh, wouldn't that be fun to get in the sandbox with her? You know. And then the final question I'd love to ask is, with such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out? To um, not get too disappointed when you don't get the job. Uh, I remember I was up for something early on in New York, and it was between me and another girl. I think it was for some kind of an extra thing or whatever on television. This was before I got mattress. And I thought I had it. I thought I had it, but I didn't. She had it. She got it. And what saved me, Charles, was I don't know how, I'm just grateful that this came to my mind. But I thought, well, you know what? It's her turn. Hmm. It's not my turn. My turn will come, but right now it's her turn. And that saved me from being disappointed and depressed. And so that's what I tell kids now, you know, just if you have the fire in the belly and you want to do it and you work hard and you've got the talent, okay, you may not always get the job. You, it might not be, you might not be the type and realize that, okay, it's their turn and uh, just keep on, keep keeping on, you know, and your turn will come and mine did. Right. Well, thank you so much. It's really been the honor of a lifetime to get to meet you and talk to you. Thank you, Charles. I appreciate it. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. Ever since I was 10 years old, Carol Burnett has been one of my favorite stars, and it was truly a dream come true to talk to her, and I'm so glad that I got to bring all of you along with me. Make sure to tune back in next week when I will be joined by Broadway star Janine LaManna, whose credits include Susicle, Kiss Me Kate, Ragtime, Sweet Charity, and The Drowsy Chaperone, and whose new show, Black and Gold, will be at the Green Room 42 on June 26th at 7pm. You won't want to miss that conversation, so make sure to tune back in, and thanks for listening.